Welcome. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, some of you guys I feel like we haven't seen in a little bit, maybe due to COVID. And so welcome back. And we're so glad to uh, see you here in person today. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's a joy uh, to be with you this morning. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Titus chapter 3. Uh, we've been walking through the book of Titus together uh, in this series called Every Good Work. So Titus chapter 3. In Titus chapter 3, Paul is turning his attention to address some different issues that are happening in Crete. You may remember this letter is written to Titus, who's a young pastor sent by Paul to get this church in Crete back on track. He's had a lot of work to do. And the question in Crete has been, uh, how do we get the church healthy, but then also how do we interact with the culture around us? You might remember that Crete's a center for pagan worship, particularly of the god Zeus. And so there's all sorts of temptations for these new believers to re-engage with old patterns of behavior when it comes to pagan worship. And so as Paul has, for the past couple chapters, walked through how here's how you get your church healthy again, now he's turning his attention to, and here is how you're going to interact with the culture around you. Now, culture is a bit of a buzzword for us. We use it all the time. We'll talk about things like workplace culture, particularly if it's a toxic workplace culture. We'll talk about differences, uh, cultural differences between races. Sometimes we use this phrase that someone is cultured, which usually means they have a lot of experience and knowledge about the arts or music or fine food. Usually this is reserved for people who are in a wealthier status or upper class. But here we talk about Southern culture, which is a good thing, right? We talk about uh, Southern food. We talk about Southern hospitality. Thank goodness we talk about Southern music, right? Which is good stuff. But really when we talk about Southern culture, we talk about a way of life, a way that we interact here where we live. Sometimes we talk about these things called cultural wars. And really what we mean is whose interpretation of the culture around us is going to win out where we live. Leads to this important question I think this morning, what is culture? When we talk about culture, what are we talking about? A basic definition of culture is just this. Shared ideas, practices, and norms that shape the identity of a group. Shared practices, ideas, and norms that shape the identity of a group. So in the United States, we have American culture, which includes things like rugged individualism, capitalism, free public education, apple pie, the 4th of July, right? Like American culture. Or we might talk about a business culture. It could be cutthroat and competitive based on the belief that to get ahead here, you have to take advantage of someone else or put yourself first. It could be a different workplace culture though. It could be family friendly, or it could be one that's based on emphasizing teamwork and collaboration. And all of those things are this idea that this collection of ideas and practices and norms build or create something something that's intangible, but something that we know we're interacting with. In one sense, when we ask this question, the question of today, how do we engage with culture, we're really asking a misnomer, a question that doesn't make sense. Uh, David Foster Wallace uh, told this story in a commencement address one time, several years ago. The story goes like this. There's two young fish swimming in the ocean. An older fish swims by, and on his way by, he just looks over and casually says, how's the water, boys? Keep swimming. As this older fish swims away, the two younger fish look at each other and go, what's water? 
They're so surrounded by it constantly, breathing it in, swimming in it, you almost don't even recognize it. And that is what culture really is. It's almost these invisible forces around us, shaping us in ways that we don't know. But this question still remains, how do we interact with the culture around us? There are things happening in our world, there are things happening in our community that we see as puzzling or as we see as things we don't understand and we go, how do we interact with that? And that's the question that Paul's addressing here in Titus chapter three on Crete. This is what he says, verse one. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. To speak no evil, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, that word means being set in a right relationship with God, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So as this Cretan church is asking, well, now how do we engage with the people and the culture around us? Paul gives them some instructions. Hey, you're not supposed to withdraw, but you're supposed to engage with the culture, particularly in terms of the way you interact with government and your relationships with other people. Now, for us, just like Crete, there's two dangers when it comes to culture. These two twin dangers we find around us all the time. The first one is this. We retreat from it. So for the people in Crete, it would have seemed to be the responsible thing to do to go, oh, we're in this crazy culture, so let's withdraw from it. Let's try to separate ourselves from it as some sort of form of self-preservation. Sometimes currently we withdraw, perhaps because we're afraid, or we think we need to leave these bad influences behind so we can be safe from their effects in our lives, in our churches, and in our families. In fact, this was the pattern for a lot of churches around us in the 80s and 90s. As culture began to change quickly, churches would condemn all of it and withdraw into their own little circle, be withdrawn. The problem with this view is that this just simply isn't what we see in the life of Jesus. In the gospel stories, Jesus is constantly with people. And all sorts of people. He's at weddings and parties and funerals and family get-togethers and walking in the streets. Jesus is engaged with people. Not only that, but Jesus is teaching his disciples to do the same thing. And so as he's taught them, he sends them out to go to weddings and parties and walk in the streets and marketplaces and interact with people. This view, some Theologians will call this view Christ against culture. 
says the only way to follow faithfully Jesus is to always oppose a worldly culture. But that's not quite what we see described in the scripture. The second ditch or the second extreme that we go to is we don't retreat from the culture, but we resemble it. That in our maybe attempt to be relevant or to fit in or to identify with the people around us, we lose anything that would make us distinctly Christian. We try so hard to be relevant that we just simply start resembling the culture around us. It's very easy for us to move from being motivated by compassion to simply copying people. This is sometimes called Christ of the culture. And really this just means that Jesus just fits into the culture in any way that we want him to. And there's nothing that would distinguish any Christian or follower of Jesus from the surrounding world. Now, the problem here is also just the New Testament. We're constantly, we're called to live much different lives based on a different set of values. Now, the problem is you're going to hear me say one thing that I don't intend, so let me clarify. The teachings of Jesus, for instance, means that we see our money differently than the surrounding culture. That we, while maybe surrounded by a capitalistic society and maybe love the fact that we are in a country that practices freedom at that regard, we don't see that our money belongs to us. Instead, we live in a countercultural way that says anything we have has been given to us by God so we can steward it. Do you see what I mean? Or maybe another example. We see our neighbors differently than our HOA. Praise God. Right? Because our HOAs in our neighborhood are designed to do one thing, concerned about one thing, keeping everyone's property values high. And so the way they see you and the rest of your neighbors is you are a roadblock to the property value of my house. And so when you didn't cut your grass, you get a notification. And when you left the boat in the driveway on the trailer, you get a notification. But we don't see our neighbors that way. We don't see our neighbors simply as a means to them doing what is required of them, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Please cut your grass, right? We don't see them as simply a means to greater property value for us. We love our neighbors. And we see them as image bearers, men and women created by God with intrinsic worth and value. Do you see how this starts to work out in our everyday lives? So then Paul gives us an alternative from retreating or withdrawing from the culture and from just resembling from the culture, that's what he's talking about in verse one. He says, remind them, remind the church to be submissive to the rulers and authorities. So Crete was known for rebellions against the Roman government. And he's saying, hey, remind them, don't get caught up in the political scene of the day, constantly calling for rebellion. Instead, be submissive. Understand a very Christian idea that every authority isn't there by their own power, but by God's power. God put them there. And then he turns his attention to our understanding of ourselves. He says, hey, as you are walking out in your world and in your culture, be obedient, ready for every good work. That we should see ourselves differently. Called not just to get along or to make a few bucks, but called to a life of obedience to Jesus, ready, positioned to be ready to engage in any good work that God calls us to. And then he says, it's gonna change your relationship with other people. Verse two, speak evil of no one, 
avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy. He says to all people. He's not just talking about do this inside the church with people like you. He's saying in all the people you interact with in your day-to-day lives, marketplace or at work, in the streets, at weddings, at funerals, wherever you interact with people. Xbox Live wasn't a thing then, but it counts, all right? In your interactions with other people, you should look like Jesus. Not quarrelsome, not ready to fight, but marked by gentleness. Not speaking evil of other people, but extending courtesy to other people that this is how we're supposed to live in this culture that oftentimes runs counter to who we are and who God's called us to be. Here's really what he's saying, if I could summarize it. The issue isn't where you live. The issue is how you live. The issue isn't where you live. The issue is how you live. Now, we could see where we live is a threat, We're surrounded by all of these things that are going to tear our families apart or all these things that are going to negatively influence. We could could create this crazy scenario where everything around us is a threat and we would do what? Withdraw. Or we could create a scenario where where we live is an excuse. Well, you don't understand. The way you get ahead in my office is you have to do this. You don't understand. The expectation is that I do falsify these reports. That's kind of what's expected of me here. Or you don't understand, the way that I have to relate to my family is like this, the way we've always done it. And we use our location as an excuse. And Paul's saying, no, no, it's neither one of those things. It's not where you live or the influence of the people around you. It's you. It's how you choose to live wherever God has placed you. And then he dives into the heart of this in verse three. So let me give you the overview so you know where we're heading. This is the big, big statement of the day. Are you ready? We are a gospel-shaped people who are living out gospel implications in our surrounding culture. So what he's about to explain, that we're a gospel-shaped people who are living out gospel implications in our surrounding culture. That we would see this idea that Jesus transforms us, and as Jesus transforms us, he uses us to transform where we live and the people where we, that we live around. Now, all this is centered on verse 5. See this little phrase in verse 5, he saved us. Now, I know. Uh, I grew up around church, late 80s and through the 90s. I know this word saved isn't cool anymore. And the reason is because of cheesy church marketing in the 90s, right? I understand that. that all of us got some weird church shirt at some weird camp. It was like, God, you saved, bro, you know, or something. Or a guy at my church had radically saved, like, a cross, his car in really big letters. And it just kind of became out of style because it was just weird. But let's not forget that what Christianity is about primarily is not a God that calls us to a certain lifestyle, but a God who comes and saves us from certain lifestyles. And so when he uses this phrase, he saved us, he is explaining that the center of what we believe is that Jesus rescues people from their sin and from their selves. That Jesus saves people for eternity from judgment and condemnation, and that Jesus saves people here and now from ways of life that lead to destruction, ways of life that seem like they're going to lead us to happiness and contentment, but are empty, and that Jesus saves the people from those things to God, 
to a relationship with God. So we're no longer condemned, but Jesus saves us means we're brought into God's family. We belong. And that Jesus saves us to a new way of life where we find fulfillment and contentment in following this way of Jesus. So we're shaped by the gospel all around this center phrase, he saved us. And then Paul's going to point out three things. Here's the first one. Take notes. Number one, all of these things should help shape the way we engage with culture. You ready? Number one, we needed the gospel, which should produce humility in us. You see verse three, what does he say? For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient. Here's what he means. We ourselves once trusted wrongly in all the wrong things. And because we were trusting in the wrong things, we acted out in all the wrong ways. And he says that we previously, we ourselves were led astray, sins of various passions and pleasures. Here's what he means. We were deceived. That we were led astray, maybe by promises of the world around us, or maybe by schemes of the devil's very real character in the scripture. But whatever it might be, we were led astray. And then once we got there, we got trapped enslaved, and there was nothing we could do about it. We couldn't get ourselves out. And then he says this, that we were marked by malice and envy. And we use that word malice a lot in our current culture. It's real simple. It just means when we wish bad things would happen to other people. So here's what he says about us before we came to know Jesus. We were surrounded by people, and we wish bad things would happen to those people. You can be honest here. You ever have a moment like that? I have. You don't have to raise your hand. I'll just raise my hand first where you just hope something bad happened to somebody else, it's okay. And then, envy, then when something good happened to those people, we resented them for it. And then he says, we were hated by others and hating one another. That we were busy separating each other into groups, comparing ourselves to each other and identifying our goodness by someone else's fault. Hatred marked who we were. And this puts us in a position for verse 5, where he says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Here's what he's saying. You, you needed the gospel. Don't forget you needed it. That you were in a state of despair, of hopelessness, unable to save yourself when Jesus saved you. And then recognizing our own need for the gospel, that should produce in us humility, not haughtiness. That when we engage with people around us who are far from Jesus, we're not looking down our noses at them. Instead, we're going, oh, no, that used to be me. I used to be the same. I used to think the same sort of things. And I used to do the same sort of things. I can't judge them. I was them. And the only difference was Jesus saved me. The second thing he says is this. We personally experience the gospel, which should produce compassion in us. Do you notice that in verse 5? He saved us. He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. 
He's saying we are personally recipients of God's grace and mercy. God freely gave us salvation, freely extended mercy to us, freely renewed our hearts, freely set us in the right with God, freely gave us eternal life. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. All the change we've experienced is Jesus' work in us. Jesus did it. Which means that we don't look around at people and go, bro, can you just get your act together? that we have to come realizing, no, we've personally experienced the effects of the gospel in our lives. And so what that produces with us is compassion. Us going, no, you don't understand. I used to be there. I used to be you. I used to believe that my significance was based on the size of my paycheck too. I used to believe that my happiness was going to be found in excess too. I used to think that rugged individualism, doing my own thing the way I want to do it, was going to make me happy too. I used to be there. But I personally experienced this transforming grace from Jesus. Number three, all of God did all the work which should produce confidence in us. So we needed the gospel. That should produce humility. We've experienced it personally, which should produce compassion in us for others. And then I, I'm not, I know this is a f- weird phrasing. Let me explain it. All of God did all of the work. And so my confidence is in God's work, not my own. Here's what I mean. Check this out. Verse four. Do you notice this? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Father, or God our Savior, that's God the Father, appeared. Then check this out. We experience what the washing and regeneration or the washing, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the third person of the Trinity. So in the Trinity, which is what Christians believe, that God is one God and three persons. The reason that sounds weird to you is because we're not as Christian as we think, all right? But the Trinity, God the Father, now we got God the Holy Spirit. Now check this out. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, God the Son. So all of God, all three of his personalities in the Trinity, who God is, was at work to save you. And all of God worked to save you, not based on your own works of righteousness, what he says, but based on his own grace. Which means, when I don't look like verse 2, when I'm not obedient, when I do speak evil, when I'm not extending courtesy to all people, when I'm full of malice and envy and anger, my salvation is not at stake because my confidence is not in my work but Jesus' work for me in my place. And so I don't have to withdraw. I'm forgiven. I don't have to retreat. I've been saved I got my confidence isn't in my own ability to navigate the current cultural climate. My confidence is that all of God did all the work for me in my place. And so when I resemble the culture more than Jesus, I come back to Christ. I repent. I say, my confidence is in you. Or when I'm tempted to withdraw out of a sense of self-preservation, I go, no, no, even if I did the very best I could at preserving myself, I still need all of you to save me. So, what does this mean for us? I love the phrase he uses in verse 2, ready for good works. So how are we, shaped in these ways by the gospel, 
shaped into a people of humility, compassion, and confidence, supposed to engage with the culture around us. How can we be ready for these good works? I think we take the two things we just talked about, the two pitfalls, and we put them together. We withdraw in order to be present. This is what we see in Jesus' life, that Jesus was present with people doing unbelievable ministry, teaching, healing, interacting with people of all sorts of backgrounds, and yet at particular periods of time, he withdraws and spends time in prayer. And if we want to be a people interacting with confidence in our culture, with humility and compassion, we must be a people who discipline ourselves to withdraw, to get alone with God in prayer, to preach the gospel to ourselves, to have Titus 3 open, to remind ourselves of what's true so that we can be prepared in those moments, be readied in those moments, so when we walk out of the door, we can be present with people, even people who disagree with us, so that we can know people, so that we can serve people, so that we can listen to our neighbors, so that we can ask genuine questions, wanting to know who they are. So we spend time reflecting on, praying through, being shaped by the gospel at a heart level. We spend time in community with each other, holding each other accountable and encouraging each other so that when we step out into the culture around us, we're ready for good works. We're not hiding. We're not staying in our community group or our small group. We're not withdrawn. We're also not making the mistake of just being present so that we begin to resemble the culture, but we're withdrawing to be present. And then we withdraw again to be present. And then we withdraw again to be present. Here's the big thing this is going to mean for us. And this is, I think, why we don't like it. What it means is we have to care a lot more about our character than we do our reputation. We have to care a lot more about our character than we do our reputation. See, we want people to think we're good. Or we want people to think we're conservative. Or we want people to think we're liberal. Or we want people to think we have it all together. Or we want people to think X, Y, or Z about us. But this passage is flipping that model. It's saying, hey, you should set off your car alarm in the middle of Brandon preaching. (laughs) If you're at home watching, you didn't hear it. I thought it was going to go on forever. I'm glad it was just a one-time thing. So what we're doing is we're saying the opposite thing that we withdraw so our character can be shaped. So we're ready for whatever anyone else says about us. Listen, guys, if we are authentically following Jesus, someone's gonna say we're too conservative. And somebody else is gonna say we're too liberal. And somebody else is going to say we care about the Bible too much. And some people say we're gonna say we use the Bible not enough. Some people are going to say that we're great and some people are going to malign our character. Some people are going to look at us down their noses because of the company we keep and some of us are going to think that we are too prideful in some ways. Somebody's always going to have something negative to say about us. We're going to have to hold our reputations loosely but be be concerned about our own character being shaped by the gospel. So if somebody wants to say, oh, that church... Oh, Mercy Hill? You know who goes to Mercy Hill? You know the kind of people that are welcome at that church? Then we go, yeah, that's exactly right. That's who we are. 
And when some people say, oh, you Mercy Hill, man, they teach some hard things. I don't know. I don't know. They teach some hard things. We're going to go, yeah, that's right. We teach some hard things. And we're going to take it all because we're going to put character first, being shaped by the gospel so that we can live out the implications of the gospel in the culture around us. Now, today, perhaps some of us here may be watching online. When we're walking through this explanation of the gospel in Titus, you're like, that's foreign to me. Man, I grew up around church. I thought I was saved or a good Christian or approved by God because I worked hard or I was better than other people. And I hope you know today that's not true. And you're not saved by your good works. You are rescued for eternity and you are rescued in the here and now because Jesus loved you and laid down his life for you on the cross. And all that's required of you and me is this thing the Bible calls faith. That we would receive this gift from God. Spurgeon used to say, faith is just a hand reaching out to receive the gift. That's all it is. And so perhaps today is the day where you receive this unbelievable gift from Jesus. For some of us who are Christians, we gotta go back to work tomorrow or school tomorrow or wherever. We gotta face those people or that situation. We got a family issue going on. We got all kinds of things going on. Please, Christian, don't be tempted to withdraw. And please don't feel the temptation to copy or resemble. But tomorrow morning, let's wake up. Bible's open. Prayer's ready. Ready to remind ourselves what the gospel says about us. Put on humility. Put on compassion. Put on confidence and then walk out. Can we do that together? All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this good, unbelievable news that you save. And you don't save just some people, you save us. That this is very real. And so, Father, today I just pray for someone watching online or someone here in person who just is far from you, but longs to be close. Feels like their life is a mess, but longs for it to be different. And God, could you draw them to yourself today? Could you save them? Could they come to a place where they receive this gift by faith? Just reach out and grab it. And Father, for those of us today who are believers, who maybe are tempted to be haughty, in our culture, to look down our noses at other, could, others, could we be shaped by the gospel and embrace humility? For those of us, me included, who lack compassion so often, could you just shape us by the gospel? And when we lack confidence, when we think it's all about us and what we've done or haven't done, could you give us confidence that you do the work? And could we engage with our culture around us, with our people, our friends, neighbors, ideas, norms, practices, as a people who are shaped by the gospel, the good news that Jesus rescued sinners, and that includes us. So God, we just ask that you would work. We ask that you would lead. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.